1: Master Donald Nally is backstage at Lyric. The chorus just
0: has the most extraordinary range of things to do. People that come to the whole season are going to be wowed by running back and forth between Mary Widow, Damnation of Faust, the Faust legend, you know, little tiny interjections in the Mozart and etc. It's kind of a stunning season for us to both challenge ourselves and show what we can do. It's going to be a great one.
1: Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines. Donald Nally is Lyric's brilliant chorus master, and he's preparing the chorus for their performances in all eight operas this season. In our conversation, he'll talk not only about the job of chorus master in general, but also about the challenges of the specific repertoire you'll be hearing in 2009-10. I'm your host for the interview. I'm here with Donald Nally, Chorus Master of Lyric Opera. Long time no see. Where have you been since uh, the end of 2008-09 season?
0: I left the day after the season and (laughs) I've spent two weeks in Cincinnati and six weeks in Philadelphia and a month in New Mexico and conducted at a wedding in Providence and drove... Totally
1: rested now. (laughs) (laughs) Hardly. (laughs) Um, 2009-10 is your third season Mm -hmm. at Lyric. So... What were the major differences in working here versus other organizations that you've worked in for opera, that is, the Philadelphia and Welsh National Opera Companies and the Spoleto Festival?
0: Um, they're so different. I mean, it seems like it's always the same job, but actually, it's quite a different job in in every situation. It's funny that when you initially started that question, and you said, what's the major difference? I wanted to say, well, it, it doesn't rain nearly as much here as it does in Wales, but... Um, Where I came from most immediately was Welsh National Opera, which is a wonderful company and nine months after I moved there they moved into a brand new theater, which is a kind of state of the art situation with these fabulous rehearsal rooms and it was a very very exciting time to be there. But largely the focus of that company has been now for quite a number of years being the most touring company in all of Europe I'm pretty sure. They tour about 20, 21 weeks out of the year to a regular kind of rotation of cities f- for which they are the opera company at Birmingham and Bergen, at the time Belfast and Plymouth and Southampton and all that kind of stuff. And so, of course, that is a completely different animal than being here. And the way in which our season works in terms of the structure, uh, I've never worked in a company before in which we have to learn and memorize all the music up front. We have five weeks to do that in the beginning of the year, and we don't do anything else. Then we go into stagings and performances, and because performances are so regular, we do so much stuff in rep, there aren't a lot of hours in the week left over to do much rehearsing. And I have almost no music rehearsal at all throughout the season itself. And that's something that really, I think, was a huge adjustment for me. Um, That's a very different situation in terms of in Philadelphia, which is a kind of paid by the hour per opera situation for the chorus. You get together, you know, starting two and a half weeks before you start your stagings and you, you know, on Tuesday, Wednesday or Friday or whatever the situation is that works around whatever else is going on in Philadelphia. And you learn the opera and you memorize the opera and you start to stage it. And it's all kind of compact. And here it's spread out over, uh, we've got damnation of Faust coming up where we'll learn it and memorize it in August. And, We don't come back to it until the very end of January. Wow. And that we're talking about an enormous opera for the chorus.
1: How many singers are there in the Lyric Opera Chorus?
0: We have 48 regulars. Very often probably at least half the time we add to that. Um, So we have 48 regular full-time people who are paid for the entire season. And then, you know, some things for Mozart, I don't like doing Mozart with large groups, except maybe Magic Flute or something big like Clemens or something like that. But for Figaro and Giovanni and all those kinds of things, I just as soon do it with quite a smaller group. But 48 is a kind of very good default number for your average or your average Verdi or something. Like
1: that. Then for Damnation of Faust, which is the biggest piece we'll do with the chorus Much. this year, you add on we, what, we're 30 at, or so? We're
0: at 80 for that.
1: You're a total of 80. Yeah. Wow. Um, they come from all over the area, don't they?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Lyric, we're an important artistic institution in this area, you know, and we actually we meet that responsibility in many ways, not the least of which is through the fact that we pay are choral artists very well for the standard market that they're working in. So many people will indeed take one or two opera contract as a supplementary chorister, and they may not even necessarily be from Chicago or the greater Chicago area. Um, there's a, a young man who's coming for two operas this coming season from Princeton, and he'll find housing or something. Um, I mean, there's quite a few coming from... Different places, But he sticks that in my mind because he started with us during Porgy and Best last year. And we really want him to be as much a part of what we're doing as possible. So um, he'll be coming from Princeton. And, you know, he has to figure that out because, as I just explained, he's going to have to be here all through August and then return for the stagings and performances of his two operas that he's in.
1: So. Now, we start the season off with Tosca. The chorus... Isn't on stage that long in Tosca, are they? Have, no. Have they scene seen at the end of Act One, which is, what, five minutes on stage?
0: Yeah, and you know, here's another interesting thing. You, know, you ask, what are the differences between companies? Well, I've never done a Tosca before in which the very first group that comes out and kind of dances around and gets all excited because they're going to be able to sing this cantata, which means they're going to make some money. And um, I've never done it where it's a small group. I've always done it where it's the tenors and all the women do that. But in this production, it's only 12 people that come out and do that part. And then the whole choir comes out and does the great today and at the end of the first act that kind of offsets, ironically, what's actually going on in the foreground, which is Scarpia kind of saying, you know, I'm going to get everything that I want.
1: Um, Now, we move to Faust where there are some huge scenes Mm, for us. Yeah, there are. What are they? That's a sort of complicated Scene that opens Act Two, which is called the caramess scene. Uh, there's a lot going on on the stage. What are the? What will the chorus actually be doing?
0: I can't tell you in the days of Gounod how they actually divided things up, but often today, even though you have costumed what is called for in this situation, you've got vendors and you've got. Milliner women, and you know, like just various things that are called for in the score. But really, almost everybody sings everything. It's it's a kind of generic approach to get the maximum amount of sound off the stage, while the action is capturing what is supposed to kind of be going on. For example, there's a moment in Damnation where um, the soldiers and the and the students. Um, sing back and forth at each other but what happens is that the soldiers sing this long thing and then the students sing this long thing and then they come together and they sing this thing together well it happens that we are going to costume only 12 people as soldiers and the other people will be in a kind of a more regular street dress kind of look actually visually you won't notice that Some of the people who just sang as the soldiers are actually now going to sing as the students. So, um, and to get that thrill, to get what the, you know, sound-wise what you really need, you kind of need to make that compromise. But the staging will be careful to make sure that the audience is seeing and getting the impact of
1: this is the moment for the students, this is the moment for the soldiers. Now, we move to Ernani uh, which is sort of rip-roaring, early Verdi. Is there a Verdi sound for a chorus that you differentiate from a Romantic French sound or a Wagner sound? You know, I think that's true, and yet
0: when you get into uh, composers who had this longevity in terms of the, their own writing and who developed, and I hope it doesn't sound some in some way arrogant or whatever, to say that Verdi developed as a composer and Puccini developed as a composer because there are certain composers who do and certain don't. You know, Chopin is a composer who I think didn't develop. He was kind of fully formed, and that's what he did. Um, But when you look at the... What Verdi did in his lifetime with with opera and and the direction that he was going as an old man is fascinating. I mean, if he had lived another, if he if he'd started Otello when he was sixty, it would be interesting to see where we are today. You know. So my point is that, that with Verdi, I really find that there is a yes. There's a certain kind of Italianate, very Italianate sound. And also a very rich and romantic sound, but that it's more specific than that, and that Traviata is a very different sound than Ernani. Ernani, to my ear, is more of a Don Carlos sound. Grander, extremely rhythmically oriented, really largely about impact.
1: Um, we move to Katya Kabanova, and there isn't much. Is there a little bit in Act Three for them? And that's yeah. We have this moment
0: where they all come out of the storm. It's actually it's kind of funny because it reminds me a little bit of the moment in Yenifa when they discover the baby and they all come running in and and are like, you know, <laughs> the ice is melting and we found the baby. <laughs> so um, in 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 Ka- in Katya, it's kind of he. You can tell he's got the same sort of. Thing going on. Actually, I guess in the the was a later piece, so it, he kind of repeated that idea, but um, they all wind up running in out of this storm and he gets to write all this sort of storm music and, and then there's a little tiny moment where the men are in this shelter with them out of the storm and Katya spills the beans about her love or her... Actually, she doesn't even do that. She just says, I went for a walk with him and uh, <laughs> winds up killing herself over that. But... Um, they kind of have this moment where they're going like, oh, look over there that, you know that, that, that's, the people, you, the confession shall be damned, and somebody else is like looking at the pretty girls, and, and consider, uh, but it's very, very
1: short. Considering the, it's Janáček, that must mean that it's musically and rhythmically incredibly complicated he, It's so short for the chorus it's so incredibly short, they literally
0: I, I can't remember the words, but it's like that's it but then the role of the court that's very incidental. And frankly, you could do it with six people. It doesn't, I think we're, I think we've got 14 on stage. Um, but the important part about our role is that we become the voices of the Volga at the end of it. Right. So as she keeps, she keeps saying, what, a, what is this sound that I hear? And it's, she's beginning to almost be seduced by the river. Um, and, I love Janicek. I just love him because he's 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 writing at this point where we are really involved in this in our psych we are beginning to really become aware and involved in our psychological selves. You know, he is very concerned with not just the so called inner life, because you could say the same thing about Wagner, but the kind of Freudian aspect of that, you know, me as a complete unit inside me who has to look inside me and think and aware of the fact that we're thinking. And so in his music, there's all these times when it's clearly he's you're watching this character develop an idea. And in this moment, you see Katya kind of going, I'm going to now turn to the river and I'm going to jump into it, and and part of that is because we're you hear the voices of the chorus off stage just soaring ah ah, ah ah, and they sort of get closer and closer until
1: she we end it. We're the last thing that happens. You hear us roaring, um, change of pace with uh, the Merry Widow. The women have the <laughs> challenge of having to move around in period gowns and sing at the same time and dance and all of that. Uh, that uh, can't be easy for everybody to manage. Is there going to be a lot of sort of physical time that's just learning how to move on stage in those particular costumes? Yes and no. I mean, part of being a professional full-time chorister
0: (laughs) is that you probably have done that so many times that it doesn't... Sure, it can be a real pain. And, you know, coming down the elevator with... 23 other people in the same costumes it takes a little while, you know. Um, but, you know, I really think that part of what, the, you know, what it, what it takes to become a person who's singing full-time at the Lyric is a knowledge of all of those types of things. It's not just singing and it's not just the languages, uh, it, uh, you know. It's also stage presence and the ability to figure out how to move around and, and do like the Onegin dance. That was a challenge because it's a um, they're really moving around on this uh, sort of a gavotte thing. It's those huge dresses. Yeah, with those dresses. So,
1: now, the director of The Merry Widow, Gary Griffin, has done a lot of musicals, and I assume he's going to be totally comfortable moving into the opera house. But generally, when you work with directors, what are you looking out for in terms of seeing that they have the chorus's best interest at heart and no names need be mentioned unless you want to.
0: (laughs) Do you know, we were just talking about this yesterday upstairs because um, it is not a a fair assumption to assume that a theater director or musical theater director even is going to move into opera easily because very seldom are they dealing with large numbers of people, 48, 60, 80, and what to do with those people in a limited amount of space in an incredibly limited amount of time in opera, we have to work much faster than they do in theater. The whole idea of theater is development, and you know people go on weekly contracts and you own them um, that 's not the way opera <laughs> works at all, and you 're always sharing your cast with two or three other directors slash conductors and that mix you know part of the part of the job part of what I love about my job is that I'm the person in the opera house who is required to be always in that mix between these director conductor duos and how they're balancing with everybody else. you know of course, stage management has a large role in that and everything, but you know as the head of the chorus, I'm in front of that. So I think what what I'm looking for with the directors um, is that, that they understand where the moments are that they can um, make pretty pictures and do whatever they want in terms of just spreading people out and taking people off stage or whatever and that they understand where the moments are that the chorus has to be downstage in your face and music is at times all you need to be happening That's, music is enough And people who come to opera and enjoy opera, um, they expect that at certain times in an aria, you know, Violetta is going to sit on the edge of the bed and just sing. And that's, and the emotional experience of that is going to be fantastic. Well, the same thing is true of. Patria Pressa or, you know, from Macbeth or, or, or any great, big, huge chorus, you know, nothing has to happen during that moment because this, the emotional impact of what's coming at you is enough information and it should allow you to stop and
1: get into your own emotional space. Um, Elixir of Love comes after Merry Widow. Is that just fun for the chorus mm. or do, are there some real musical challenges that are part of it?
0: It's always a challenge to have a conductor stand hundred feet away from you and conduct an orchestra of sixty people, who you can't see, and make it all happen together and beautifully, and have lots of little nuances and softs and louds and all that kind of stuff. So I don't think that I can't think of an opera where I wouldn't say that there's some challenge. And Elixir is a very fast-moving um, opera. For the, the chorus has a lot of words which they just, you know, go you know, there's going on and on, on, on and on um, and they have to move very quickly and it has to be quite, it's also quite a, a um, staccato-y kind of a sound. You know, it, it's everything they do, they I, they hardly ever, I can't think of anything they sing that is really kind of a legato, beautiful line. It's all... And, um, and so in that way, that's another kind of a challenge. But is it fun? It's incredibly fun because... I believe Donizetti was from Bergamo and, and he um, is capturing this kind of like both a, a sort of love for peasant, simple people and maybe, make, maybe not making fun but having fun with them and their slightly lovable gullibility and that's all in this opera. So they, they get to be very... Uh, I, I love them. You know what I mean? I love the the people in the town of Elixir because they're good people, and they it's, it's so great. For example, when the women all these find out that he has inherited this money, but he doesn't know it, and so he thinks that the elixir is the reason that they're all like goo gaga over him and want to have the first dance with him, and and it's you know it's such a simple, stupid, <laughs> it's such a dumb. Um, idea and yet it's perfect it's per- it's just perfect because you can you can take that moment and stretch it out forever because the joke is a good joke, and you know it, ke- it keeps it's the joke it keeps on giving so it's so great to see the women do that, and this is after they've all already bought the elixir themselves in the first scene, so you're kind of scratching your head going like well <laughs>
1: We don't need to talk much about Figaro because there are only a couple of very brief episodes that our chorus can probably sing in their sleep by now.
0: Mozart didn't care about
1: us. (laughs) But what about the biggie this season for you, The Damnation of Faust by Berlioz? Isn't he one of the toughest 19th century composers for any chorus to sing?
0: I love Berlioz. I love his music. And partly it's because he was smart enough and confident enough to know that he had the goods in terms of all that sort of classical foundation, and I'm, by that I mean classical era foundation form uh, underneath him. That he could just experiment and do whatever he wanted, and he did. He just he can't, it's a one every composition i hear of him i just sit there going this is just one huge experiment and most of it works phenomenally well and so when you look at what he's done in this piece i mean i just can't get over the fact that he writes this sleeping chorus that is you know and i'm i i, I it's very unusual for me to just, to, to sort of Really, really go over superlatives about um, music because I have a very objective view about it when you work right inside of it, you see all the flaws you know and even though you you know it's heretical to say that Beethoven's not always right, you can still say you know well it's not a perfect piece and or this piece isn't even a good piece you know um, so To look at what, for example, to to, to something of such incredible beauty, he's written this incredibly beautiful piece, and yet it's plopped in the middle of this kind of strangely evolving plot. It's it's an oratorio that leaves big holes of the story out. You know, it's really just scenes in a life. Um, but then again, that's another thing I just love about this piece. It, that's what it is. It's scenes in a life. It's as if you were watching a movie. Um, and just you're finished with this, and the next thing you know, you're in the middle of a garden, you know, or whatever. At any rate, there are enormous challenges. I think the, the biggest challenges are musical ones in terms of. The incredible amount of nuance that's that's necessary. I mean, he starts it out with this little peasants chorus, you know, da 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 da. The third verse of that has the tenors saying, um, "Let's seize the moment while your husband's away and kind of step around the corner or so, you know something something like that." And in that, in they have a dynamic range within two two phrases that goes from like forte to pianissimo with a with a kind of a moment in the middle of it, and all these different colors, and it's all, and it, he's just expecting that you're going to be able to speak, like almost, almost a, a talk a sentence um, in words. Only we're talking about you know twenty, twenty four people singing the same line, and uh, it's in that way. Yes, there are enormous challenges for us here in this situation. I think also um, you're throwing in the challenge of memorizing because. This piece was not designed to be memorized, and clearly the writing in it wasn't a composer that was looking at it thinking like, well, you know, I got to kind of do some rep- repetition here, and I might change the words, but I'll keep the music the same, or or vice versa, you know, I might change the music, but then I'll keep the words the same. And so to try to aid in getting this piece up and going, well, Ber- Berlioz was writing an oratorio, so he wasn't concerned about that. People were just going to hold their scores so memorizing this there are a lot of words in it and a lot of corners to turn uh in terms of when you're memorizing a piece a lot of it has to do with which cor- which what corner am i turning that's why I had like doing a handle oratorio when you're memorizing handle oratorio is so incredibly hard because because there's all these fugal entrance and the, the first you know the sopranos might be going along and then have two and a half bars off and then they come back in the fugal entrance and then the next time it happens it's the same fugal entrance on the same pitch but it's seven beats and you know and the next time it might be you know five measures
1: and all of those corners are really hard to memorize well it's going to be a terrific season and very challenging and I know you're going to be as busy as can be from start to finish but I want to wish you all the best for it and thank you very much
0: we're going to have a ball People that come to the whole season are going to be wowed by running back and forth between Mary, Widow, Damnation of Faust, the Faust Legend. Um, you know, little tiny interjections in the Mozart and etc. It's kind of a stunning season for us to both challenge ourselves and show what we can do. It's going to be a great one. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric. The podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago For additional interactive content and to order tickets visit us online at lyricopera.org